In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to further this give and take, this Q&A, this exchange between my pastor friend and me on the gay gene and how Christians should respond to the homosexual argument, the argument that you're born that way, an argument that I contend is opposite of the gospel, which calls upon us to be born again. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening to the show. Well, today's episode is going to be focused on this exchange, this Q&A, this question and answer debate that I had with a Wesleyan pastor, where he was contending that my position on LGBTQIA, homosexuality, lesbianism, the gay argument, the trans argument, the rainbow argument is broken. I'm arguing that this is antithetical to a biblical worldview, and it's antithetical to the gospel. And as you know, yesterday I presented my first response to this pastor's concerns. On today's show, I'm going to review yesterday's response, and then I'm going to further that discussion because he wasn't done. He fired back with a couple more questions, and I obviously responded. So I'm going to give you those questions from that Wesleyan pastor and my responses, and then you decide. You decide who has a tighter argument, who's more closely aligned with the Bible, and who's making more sense for the good of humanity. Let's take an early break, and when I get back, I'll give you more on this exchange, this argument, this debate that I've called the pastor and the gay gene. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need, sold. The Patriot Auto Group, proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Welcome back to The Rebellion. So, as you know, if you listened to yesterday's show, I featured a question and my corresponding response with a Wesleyan pastor who challenged me on my contention that when you open up Pandora's box of subjective identity claims, especially when they're grounded in sexuality, that there's no end to the argument. And I said, and I've said several times on this show, if we define ourselves by our desires, where does it stop? 
If you are nothing but the sum total of your inclinations, your passions, your proclivities, if you define yourself as nothing but the outward pouring of the temptations that you have, the imbibing of every temptation that comes your way, then why would you not define yourself by anything and everything that you want to do? I've argued over and over again that every one of us, every single one of you listening to the show right now, desires to do something that you shouldn't do. We all want to do things that we as human beings know we should control and we shouldn't do. I may want to cheat on a test, for example. I know it's easier not to study. I may know that you're very bright and very smart and that you spend a lot of time in preparation for a quiz or a test. And if I sit right behind you and look over your shoulder and copy your answers, I'll get a very good grade and I don't have to do any of the work. I may have a temptation, a desire, a proclivity to do that. I may be tempted to do that, but is it right? Or should I restrain myself and and not do it? Because it's simply wrong. I may desire to have nice things, nice clothes, a nice car, etc. I could go steal those things from a, from a retailer, but I don't do that because it's wrong. Not just because it's illegal, but because it's wrong, and I know I shouldn't take things that don't belong to me. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in the, in the uh, book Mere Christianity, where he calls it the Tao. It's spelled T-A-O, the Tao. And he calls this the universal understanding that every human being has, that it's wrong to cut in line, it's wrong to steal someone else's food, and we have righteous indignation when when we see that rule being broken. We see it in children, where someone cuts in line, cuts ahead of them, and they say, hey, that's not fair. Or at the lunchroom, in an elementary school, or even at the kindergarten or preschool level, where some bully steals another child's food, something that he wants that he doesn't have in his sack lunch, and the child says, hey, that's my orange, or that's my apple, or that's my candy bar, whatever the case may be. You see this awareness that the truth of God is written on every human heart, and you see the fact that human beings define themselves not by giving in to those temptations, but by resisting them. You're a moral and just and quote-unquote, good human being, if you don't imbibe every temptation that you have, if you choose not to define yourself by every passion that may come your way. I've said a thousand times over that Christians should understand everything I'm saying right now because we know that we are defined by our Lord, not our libido. In other words, we're born again. We don't accept the fact that we're born that way. Now, a Wesleyan pastor, of all people, should understand everything I just said. But this particular pastor that I'm talking about right now, and I'm not giving you his name, that's unimportant. I will give you the denomination because that is important, because a Wesleyan pastor should be evangelical. He should understand that the Bible is inerrant. It's authoritative. It's true. In fact, Wesleyan discipline, Wesleyan polity, and doctrine still still subscribes to the inerrancy of Scripture. When a pastor is ordained, he's raising his hand and he's pledging to defend and to preach the views of the Wesleyan Church. And those views include inerrancy. So how could you not understand that from Genesis through Revelation, the Bible is very clear on these issues? How can you not understand that if you open up Pandora's box of defining yourself by your sexual desires, 
then every other desire that comes your way will become the precursor and the foundation, the pretext for defining who you are. And that was my argument, continues to be my argument. I stand by it. And I've said that if you open up this Pandora's box, I'll say it again, of gay marriage and subjective identity claims based on homosexuality, then the next shoe to fall will be other sexual derivations of that. Uh, polygamy, incest, and pedophilia will be next. Oh, that, that's, a terrible, that's a terrible comparison to make, says my Wesleyan pastor friend. In fact, he says it's disingenuous at best and fear-mongering at worst. He went on to say that pedophiles are predators. Their actions harm others. However, a committed homosexual couple does not necessarily harm others. Their actions affect only themselves, and that is a major distinction. The unnecessary comparison, says my pastor friend, of homosexuality and pedophiles leads to attitudes in the church that are anti-Christ-like, and that is not the rhetoric of love and grace. Now, you know what I said to him yesterday. First of all, comparing me with the Antichrist, which he has done here, he didn't say unchristlike. He said anti-Christ-like, and he did that on purpose. No biblically literate person uses the word antichrist without knowing what it refers to. Antichrist is referring to the end times, the antichrist rising up, Satan personified against Christ and his church. And he's saying that my reference to Scripture, a biblical definition of humanity, is antichrist-like. This is a major issue. This just this just isn't a casual debate. This is a this is a Q&A that digresses to one Christian calling the other Christian anti-Christ-like. This is about the greatest insult that one Christian can hurl at another. So I'm responding very clearly here, and I'm saying that I disagree. And I don't think there's a huge difference, as he says, between homosexuality and racism or hatred or anger or any other form of sexual sin, such as pedophilia, adultery, or whatnot. They're all in the same category, in my view, and his attempt to draw a distinction between them and others by saying that pedophilia harms others because it's predatory, and other sexual sins, such as homosexuality, etc., don't. That's crazy talk. That's nonsense, because every sexual sin harms someone else. It harms someone else's body, and essentially, I would argue that every sexual sin is driven by your or my personal desire to use somebody else's body for our own purposes. And therefore, it is predatory. It may not be predatory toward a minor, but it's predatory toward somebody else. Oh, but consent, you say. Consent makes it all right. No, just because you can coerce, cajole, and convince somebody to do something with you that they didn't want to do five minutes ago doesn't make it right. If it was wrong then, how of, how all of a sudden does it become moral and just and good and pure now just because you got them to consent to it? I've argued many, many times on this show that that's a very low bar for morality. And in fact, it's a bar that doesn't make it moral at all. It makes it acceptable, consensual, sure, between two people. But come on, if that's the only bar we have for morality, then we're in trouble. And I've also argued that it's obvious in our culture right now that we're blurring the distinctions between adults and children. We're arguing that minors, children as young as 14, 13, 12, and in some cases even 10 or so, have the right and authority 
to make decisions as to how to alter their body sexually for the sake of the trans identity argument. Well, if a child has the adult authority and right and cognitive awareness, moral culpability, if the child can make that decision at 10, 12, 14 years of age to alter their body sexually, then you know what's going to be argued next, and it's already coming down the pike. That same child can make a decision to engage in sexual activity with anybody else, whether they be somebody of their own age or somebody older than them. Because if they're adult enough to make a decision to alter themselves and remove sexual organs, then why aren't they adult enough to make decisions to engage sexually as they choose? This argument's coming. It's already there. And my pastor friend's argument that I'm being disingenuous and anti-Christ-like in making these statements? Are you serious? Really? Well, he wasn't done. He went on and asked another question. And I want to read that question to you, and I'll give you my response to it. He says this, The issue of whether or not homosexuality is genetic is much more significant than you apply. Let's take a different example, schizophrenia. Schizophrenics can do some immoral things due to their disorder. Should we damn schizophrenics to hell for these actions? And if a person with Down syndrome doesn't accept Christ, she will be condemned as well, right? After all, you are saying that genetics is irrelevant. The court system recognizes that there are genetic and mental conditions that mitigate behavior. Someone who is actually clinically insane is not held criminally responsible for his actions. To say that the discovery of the homosexual gene wouldn't change anything is going too far. Now, that's my Wesleyan pastor's response to me saying that genetics really doesn't matter. If you're genetically predisposed to anger, that doesn't justify you lashing out and hurting people because you're angry. You need to control yourself. If you're genetically predisposed to steal something, which I would argue almost all of us are, that doesn't justify you succumbing to your genetic predisposition and taking things that don't belong to you. If men are genetically predisposed to be philanderers, to be polymorous, which some would argue all men are, then does it justify us breaking, breaking our marital vows and saying, well, I was just born that way? No. All of us as human beings are bound to control ourselves, at least if we understand morality and civility and being decent persons, we do. We control ourselves. We become chivalrous rather than cads. Does that make sense? Well, this pastor doesn't like this. He doesn't like the fact that I'm saying, even if we discovered a gay gene, it wouldn't matter. And he uses schizophrenia as an example, or Down syndrome, in the same manner. Well, here's my response. I want you to hear what I'm going to say to him. And again, he's saying that when I argue that the discovery of a homosexual gene wouldn't change anything, and that I'm going too far by saying that, I want you to hear my response. Okay, here it is. The question of damning others to hell, because he uses that language. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to allow him to go down this rabbit trail, because that really isn't what I'm arguing here. Okay, so I'm going to respond to that first, and I'm going to respond to his accusation that I'm damning other people to hell. Okay, so I'm, I'm, here it is. The question of damning others to hell is not mine to answer. The question of sin, however, it has been answered by God's word. 
So I'm not going to let him paint me into a corner as being the judge as to who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's not the argument here. The argument is, what does the Bible say? And as a Wesleyan pastor, and me as a Wesleyan college president, we ought to be able to agree that the scriptures, the Bible, is the final measuring rod of all things being measured in this particular debate. So quit the distractions, the the non sequitur of me damning other people to hell. That's not in the argument here at all. If the Bible makes it clear that if you don't confess this sin, that you are bound to hell, then it's not me who's doing the damning. It's God, because he's outlined it in Scripture. So the question of damning others to hell is not mine. That's not my issue. That's not my responsibility. And I'm not pretending to take that responsibility unto myself, nor do I want it. The question of sin, however, has been answered, and it's been answered in God's word. The word that this Wesleyan pastor himself has sworn during his ordination ceremony to preach and defend. The scenario that he cites, the scenario of schizophrenia and Down syndrome, etc., I'm going to argue it's disingenuous, and that he is inappropriately mixing Those with illnesses, okay, so he's mentioning schizophrenia and Down syndrome. These are officially diagnosed illnesses. So he's mixing those with illnesses and compromised rational capacities, schizophrenia and Down syndrome. Those with an illness or a compromised rational capacity with those who are not ill but who simply choose to behave in a given sexual manner. So he's mixing categories here. He's mixing somebody who's sick or somebody who was born in a given fashion with a mental deficiency or something that has compromised their cognitive abilities, like Down's syndrome. So he's mixing this with somebody who was born healthy, but who is now choosing to do something that is prohibited that's prescribed by scripture. A person's inability to understand right from wrong because of an illness is not something to be equated with a person's choice to do wrong rather than right because they feel or believe they were born to do so. I want to say that one more time. A person's inability to understand right from wrong in the case of schizophrenia or maybe even in the case of a Down syndrome child That person's inability to understand the difference between right and wrong because of an illness is not something to be equated with a person's choice to do wrong rather than right because they feel or believe they were born to do so. Okay, there's a big difference here, and he's the one mixing these two categories, inappropriately so. So with that as context, I'm going to say this very, very clearly. I don't think it's accurate or biblical to argue that I'm the one going too far to say that a genetic predisposition to behave sinfully really doesn't mitigate in any way God's mandate not to do so. All of us, all of us are genetically predisposed to behave sinfully. I'm going to say it one more time. All of us, every one of us, there's none righteous, no no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, if you claim to be without sin, you make God out to be a liar. This is biblical truth. These are biblical passages that I'm citing right now. So for this pastor to mix illnesses, such as 
Down syndrome, or schizophrenia. In with every other person that's born healthy with no dysfunction and no handicap other than original sin. And to suggest that somehow the person who decides to behave badly is the same type of person who's born with schizophrenia or Downs is disingenuous, and it's the mixing of categories, and it's a false equivalency. So again, I'm going to say it. I don't think it's accurate at all, and I don't think it's biblical at all for this pastor to argue that I'm the one going too far, and that's his quote. He says, I'm going too far. I'm not the one going too far when I say that a genetic predisposition to behave sinfully, which this pastor has, and so do I, and so do you, that doesn't mitigate in any way God's mandate that we not succumb to it, not do it. Does that make sense? Well, one more question. He fires back again. He says this, more significant is the theological side of this debate. Let's assume that in the years to come, there is a legitimate scientific proof that homosexuality is a genetic thing. In that case, what are we to say about those people and their relationship to God? Did God create them? Absolutely. But wouldn't that mean that God had created them in a way that prevented them from following him? Why would a loving God create a human being with a physical predilection toward damnation, a predilection that such a person had no choice about or control over? This is a different thing than sinful nature, since sinful nature is hardly a part of the genetic code. The existence of a homosexual gene, should it ever be proven, would cause some major theological concerns and require some pretty significant rethinking of our understanding of God and of humans. This is a quote from a Wesleyan pastor, an evangelical teacher. All right, I'm going to be very, very clear in answering this one. Uh, Frankly, I'm just taken aback by this argument from this guy. I'm going to say it as if I'm talking to him right now. Okay, so I'm responding to him, this pastor. Pastor, Reverend Smith, or whatever your name is, oh, you are saying what you just said is that people who are created with any genetic propensity to sin must have thereby been created by God in such a way that prevents them from following him. Are you serious? You argue that such human beings with a physical predilection towards sin have no choice or control over their behaviors. You, you're concluding or contending that the sinful nature, therefore, cannot be part of the genetic code. I don't really know how to respond to this other than to simply cite the fact that, quote, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's another quote from Scripture. By one man, sin entered the world. Okay, it seems pretty clear that even in just these two simple biblical passages, that, number one, all of us, every single one of us, you included, Pastor, are indeed born sinful, number one. And second, all of us, you included, inherited, to use your words, the propensity from our genetic ancestors to sin. You can call it what you want, but the propensity, the predisposition, the predilection to sin is indeed part of our identity, every human being's identity. All of us have physical predispositions to do things that, frankly, we shouldn't do. 
because they are purely and simply wrong. None of us, none of us was born outside of that reality and that fact. Again, I've said it over and over again, G.K. Chesterton, the most proven part of all of Christian theology is original sin. And this pastor, this pastor is ignoring that. And he's somehow arguing that if you're born with a propensity to sin, that somehow that's evidence that God made a mistake. And God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't create any of us with a predilection, a passion, a temptation, a hunger, a drive, a desire to do anything that's wrong. This pastor is ignoring the, one of the basic narratives of all of Scripture, and that is we are broken, and that through one man sin entered the world. And it's only through one man that that sin can be forgiven, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we claim to be without sin, we make God out to be a liar, and the truth is not in us. This is all biblical. I didn't make any of that up, and this pastor is ignoring that. So again, I'm going to repeat what I just said. Pastor, you can call it what you want, but the propensity to sin is indeed part of every human being's identity. Okay, All of us has, have physical predispositions, propensities, to do things that are frankly wrong, and we shouldn't do them. The fact is that this is part of our DNA, but that doesn't in any way justify wrong behavior. Uh, I'm just stunned with this pastor's cavalier uh, use of scripture or his intentional ignoring and sidestepping of it. And this is a Wesleyan pastor. And frankly, this is a poster child, different show, different time, but this is a poster child of everything that's wrong with the evangelical church today. This is why the world isn't listening to us anymore, because we're ignoring the very principles of our doctrine. We're ignoring the distinction that makes us better than the world, the distinction between the church and culture. And we want to be more like culture than asking the culture to convert and be more like Christ. It's shameful, quite frankly. Well, the pastor ends up responding with this. In the last few minutes, I'll give you his last question, his last salvo, and my response. He, this, he says this in this exchange. I could say more, but I'll leave it here for now. In short, I think you do a disservice to both the church and to the homosexual community when you oversimplify the issue or dismiss the validity of some of the opposing arguments. Like it or not, there are shades of gray on this issue. That's what the pastor says. A Wesleyan pastor, an evangelical pastor, a guy who's teaching people in his church to be holy. And now he's dismissing this particular issue and arguing that the call to holiness does not include confessing temptations, proclivities, predispositions to engage in homosexual behavior, that you can be holy without confessing that particular desire and seeking to be transformed, born again, redeemed, renewed, and become a new creation in Christ. So my answer to him is basically this. In the last couple minutes of the show, candidly, I'm just bewildered as to how calling on all of us to be personally responsible to live godly and holy lives is a disservice to the Wesleyan tradition, or the broader church for that matter. 
As to my comments being a disservice to the homosexual community, again, I don't understand how that's so. How could helping a person stop his or her destructive and unhealthy behavior be misunderstood as a disservice? Okay? It would seem to me that enabling the same person to continue to harm his body and someone else's is the greater disservice here. And that doesn't even mention the fact that that same person is harming his soul and somebody else's by ignoring God's call to confess, to confess and to repent of unhealthy, sinful desires. Being born again, not accepting the fact that you're born that way. Dying to self, picking up your cross daily, dying to self and become a new creation in Christ. How in the world is making that argument a disservice to the church? I've said it before. If the Wesleyan Church doesn't understand this, then the Wesleyan Church is in trouble. And if you're attending a church, I don't care what denomination, that thinks it's a disservice to call upon people to confess their sins, repent, and be born again, behold, the old is gone and the new has come and you're a new creation in Christ. If your church doesn't understand that, then get out of that church and go someplace else. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.